Ephesians chapter 1. Now that we're getting things back together, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a handful of them strewn about the back of the pews. Feel free to get up and grab the closest one if you're in need of it this morning. We are in a section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he is um, reviewing all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And it is comprehensive. It's chronologically comprehensive. He reaches all the way back into eternity past and walks all the way through into where we're headed eternally. It is... um, theologically comprehensive. It introduces us to the works of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, is, um, it is so comprehensive that Paul's kind of gateway language that he uses for this list is every spiritual blessing. Okay? It, is, it is broad what he's doing, but it's more than comprehensive. It is also liturgical. What I mean is that what Paul does here is not just tell us something. He tells us something in a particular way, as a blessing, as a benediction. And so the opening words of verse 3 are, Blessed be the God and Father who has done all these things. A blessing is one of those words that's just really hard to define and very easy to use poorly. So I just, just shorthand, I want to change it to praise be to God. And so what this is, is not merely, here are the things that God has done for you. This is a call to worship God for what he's done. But because it's so comprehensive, it also serves us as a narrative, as the story that in Christ we find ourselves written into. And as we began the book of Ephesians last week, I exhorted us all to recognize that in Christ we have a new identity and find ourselves in a new story. And learning that story and embracing that story and living out that story is definitive for what it means to be in and to follow Christ, okay? And so, as we begin this morning, I want to look at this first beginning, this reference point to things that are already true, that God has already done, in terms of an origin story, okay, which has become very popular in our culture, okay? So think of superhero movies. Where do they inevitably, inevitably begin? Not like a biography at the birth of the superhero. You know nothing about when Peter Parker was born or what hospital or any of that, right? The, the only time the birth is involved is in like Superman, where it becomes part of what makes Superman Superman, right? Origin stories tell us who the character is and define the story. And we don't just do it with superheroes. We've started to do it very heavily with villains, right? What made a person a person? What makes Cruella de Vil Cruella de Vil, right? These are origin stories. And there's an assumption there and a proper one that to understand who someone is, you have to know how they became that someone. 
What I'd like to suggest to you this morning is if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you have a new origin story. Okay? Which is super weird because we would like to begin our Christian life when we became Christians. And Paul says, forget about that. Let me tell you your origin story. Okay? So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read verses 3 through 6 this morning, pray, and then take a deeper look. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would move us not just into a place of understanding this morning, but into a place of worship that we would be able to see so clearly the things that Paul describes this morning as being true of us, that it would draw us as it drew Paul into praise. And Lord, as, as as we look at our new origin story, as the new beginning, as we find ourselves in Christ, I pray, Lord, that it would define the contours of every great event and every minor happening in our life. We ask that you would help us to understand these things this morning by your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite movies is the Will Ferrell movie, Stranger Than Fiction. And if you're not familiar with it, Will Ferrell plays a character who suddenly starts to hear a narrator narrating his life as he goes about it. And so he, instead of going to see a psychologist, ends up going to see a literature uh, professor because it's very clearly book-oriented. And so he's trying to figure out what's going on, and the literature professor says, all right, we cannot know what story you're in until we know who the author is. And so to narrow things down, we need to decide if you're in a comedy with a good ending or a tragedy with a bad ending, and so he goes about his life for the next week just marking things that might make this a comedy and things that might make it a tragedy. But I want to suggest that just like that idea of origin story, there's there's an impulse in that movie that is just right, that the most significant thing in understanding the story you find yourself in is who its author is. Okay. Because that changes the story that's being written. You know, God forbid you find yourself a character in Edgar Allan Poe, right? You can assume that your life is going to be hard and hopeless and that it will end in despair, okay? If you find yourself in a Nicholas Sparks novel, you can imagine there's going to be love and romance, right? And what Paul does here is he begins to describe the story we find ourselves in in Christ. He does it primarily by describing the author of the story. Okay. And so let's look at this again together. And I, I want to basically help us understand the passage as a whole and then move on to its implication. So let's look again at verse 3. Now, as I already said, the word blessed there, especially blessed be God, 
we don't really know what to do with that language. And the reason why Paul doesn't say praise be to God here is, is for two reasons. One, because Paul is Jewish. And these type of bekara, which is just the Hebrew word for blessings, we find throughout scripture, sometimes on people. Like in Numbers chapter six, the Lord bless you and keep you, right? That's not just, uh, that's not just a description again. It does something. It's, it's calling on, it's asking God to bless people. But we also find statements in the Old Testament often, blessed be God, okay? And those are an action as well. They're an action of praise, okay? So it's unfamiliar to us because Paul is Jewish, and for most of us, that's not the case for us. But also, he's, he's doing a play on words. Why should God be blessed? Blessed in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Do you see that? He's harnessing this word and he's seeing this as a a reciprocal relationship. Why should God be blessed? Because he has blessed us and he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, okay? And so I was trying to think of a word that we could use that's not so loaded and yet empty, like the word blessed. And the only one I could think of is, is bountiful, okay? But still, we get hung up on that first word because that move from a blessing as something that happens to us to blessing God, it's just a hiccup. And so you can say who has bountifully given every bounty in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. That works. But we can't say bounty be God or to God be the bounty, right? That doesn't make sense. And so, again, I think it's best to think praise be to God. But why? because God has abundantly blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For the next three weeks, we're going to work through the list of what Paul's talking about when he says every spiritual blessing, but he begins appropriately in the beginning. Okay, And so he says there at the tail end, or at the beginning there of verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And notice at the end there, just a side note, how he comes full circle and returns again to that idea of us being blessed, okay? But who is doing the blessing? Who is the giver? in this scenario? Who is the subject of these verses? Who is the one who is acting in all these ways? As Paul describes who we are this morning, does he focus on what we have done? No, not at all. In fact, there's no actions described that you took, nor are there actions commanded for you to take in this section. Instead, the primary actor from the beginning is God the Father, okay? So notice this. Let's hit this pretty hard. Okay, even as he chose us, okay, um, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption. Now think about that word, adoption. Is that something we do or something he does? He does. Okay, and even before he adopts us, he determined to adopt us. Okay, so he is the decider and the actor. According to what? The purpose of his will. Okay. Was it because you wanted to be adopted? No. 
Where is the action here? The action is entirely and totally with God. And we see this even in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. God acted, therefore we praise him. We give him the credit. And then notice that phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, one way to look at verses 3 all the way through 14, this long list of every spiritual blessing, um, is, is it's got a musical quality to it. And if it did have a musical quality, to the praise of his glory would be the chorus. It's repeated three times, okay? We'll see it next week, and we'll see it the following week. But in this first one, it's not to the praise of his glory, but to the praise of his glorious grace. And grace, again, is a reference to the fact that God has done something. We have not, right? To the praise of his grace means all of these things that God has done stem from his character, because of his goodness and not our own, okay? And so God is the primary actor here. But I want you to notice something deeper. Why does God do these things? Why did he choose you? Why did he adopt you, okay? For his own reasons is very clear, according to his purposes, it says. But the second thing I want you to notice here is not just that God is the primary worker, the agent of, uh, of um, the agent of the story, the active one, but I want you to notice his motive. So let's read it again and watch for that. Look at verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Why? Before him. Okay. So in other words, this isn't something God does at a distant for some other reason. This is not the Rocky story where there's, there's a championship belt and he comes along as a coach and makes you a champion so you can win the belt. This is about him. He chose you so that you could be in his presence. And before him is a very important word. In fact, uh, the reformers loved the phrase in Coram Deo. That was how we were to live our life, before the face of God. It was a recognition that we were to live out our life in a story. In fact, here, let's think of it this way. This is as if a director of a play wrote a story just for you, and then when you went out on stage and looked into the audience, he was the only one there. He's telling the story for himself. This is about you and him. And we don't just see it there. Not only is this before him, but notice that it says he, uh, that, uh, he predestined how, in verse 5 there, in love. And let me deal with just a little aside. Uh, two weird things. One, if you have an ESV like mine, you have the opening of that sentence and then a verse marker. In love, suddenly it's verse 5, he predestined. Some of you may even have a translation that says that we might be holy and blameless before him in love, period. He predestined us, okay? The reason is because this is one long Greek sentence, and that clause, in love, could look either way, and we have to make a decision. But most commentators agree that it belongs with the next clause and the one, not the one before it. So how did he predestine? How did he determine? In love, So, what drove God to do this? 
his love for you. But it doesn't stop there. As we continue here, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Adoption, again, is relational language. Okay? He is not functioning here as an advocate for the orphan who finds them a good home. He is functioning here as the father who adopts, who brings you not just into a home, but into relationship with himself, into his home. Okay? And then notice here, it says, according to the purpose of his will. Now, I am befuddled by this phrase in the ESV. Every other translation I can find says according to the pleasure of his will. The word here uh, uh, that's used for purpose is usually translated, even by the ESV, as good pleasure. Okay? In fact, you may remember in the Gospels there's an occasion where Jesus is being baptized by John and John and Jesus hear a voice from heaven. And the voice says of Jesus, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Same word that's used here. Okay. Why is that important to notice? Because purpose just says he has intentions. Pleasure says he does it with joy. Okay. According to the pleasure of his will means he is delighted to do this. According to the pleasure of his will doesn't just mean that he's in control but that he is enjoying doing this, right? He takes pleasure in it, okay? And so it finishes here to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, okay? So the first thing I want you to notice here that we've already talked about is that God is the primary actor here. The second thing I wanted you to notice is that he does so in a posture of love and good pleasure to bring you to himself. It's relational, okay? And the last thing I want you to notice is that he does it every step of the way through or in Christ, okay? Look at how present Jesus is. In this passage that's all about God the Father, look at how many times he shows up. Let's go back to verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to get to adoption in a moment, so he could say, blessed be our God and Father. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray. That's how the Lord's Prayer that we looked at this morning opens, our Father in heaven. But here, he wants to make the connection that we cannot think about God the Father apart from Jesus, his Son. Okay? But he doesn't stop there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So how do we come to find ourselves so blessed? Because we are in Christ. Look at Izzy verse in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. God's cho choice of you before the foundation of the world was in Christ. Okay. As he continues here, uh, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ. You feeling a little bit of repetition here? You feel like Paul might have an ax to grind, a point he's trying to make? And it doesn't stop there. As he continues here, he says, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, I've been chewing on that last clause for the last 24 hours. Why does he finish that way? 
Every other time, it's in him, through him, by Christ, in Christ. And suddenly, all of a sudden, it's the beloved. I would suggest to you this morning that I think there's two things going on. One is, there seems to be a hint of a reference back to that baptism I mentioned. Right? When Jesus is baptized, that's his origin story. And I know there's a virgin birth before that, and there's some things that happen before that, but that, we mark that as the beginning of Jesus' ministry for a specific reason. Because that's where God effectively proclaims Jesus as his publicly and says, this is my son. Okay. But what does he call him? What does it say, the voice from heaven? You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. And we find both that idea of good pleasure here and that idea of beloved. In other words, that is, and I've got to be careful with the language here, but that is Jesus' adoption. Not that he already wasn't the son of God. Read John chapter 1. He clearly was. But at that point, God took him in his human flesh and, and claimed him as his own. You are my son. And what he's saying in this passage is you have now come into that position because you are in Christ. You are in the beloved, therefore you are the beloved. Okay. Now, we would need a theoretical degree in physics and an incredible imagination to try and think about the timeline involved here. Right? You have your decision to become a Christian. You have Jesus coming and dying for your sins and, and that baptism right there. And then you have this before the foundations of the world reality. And how is it that all of those fit together? Paul spends no time trying to explain it to us. Okay. But there is no separating these eternity past preambles, the choosing and the predestining, from Christ. None. It doesn't say he chose us and then he sent Jesus. He chose us before the foundations in him. Okay. Or as it says in the book of Revelation, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world, right? This is, this is the eternal plan of God. It's, this is big and heady stuff. And we could easily get lost in this place talking about election and predestination and what this means for free will. Paul doesn't give a rip. It's not his point. In fact, I want you to notice here that Paul is not talking to non-Christians. I went to a rap concert once, a Christian rap concert, and they had a speaker, and he got up, and he read a verse out of Romans, a controversial one, that quotes a passage out of Hosea, a controversial one, that says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated. And this is what the preacher said. He read that verse, and he said, some of you are the children of God, and you need to repent and come back to him. I'm not speaking to the rest of you. That is not what election or predestination is about. Never once is it used evangelistically. Never once does Peter stand up before a crowd and say, some of you God has chosen. He just preaches Jesus Christ. But the Bible does talk about these ideas of God doing something before the beginning of time on your behalf. Anytime it's brought up, it's speaking to those of us who are Christians. Election is not a doctrine that deals with evangelism. It's a doctrine that deals with edifying the saint. 
It's about knowing who you are. And this is the thing. When we look at the origin story of our lives, now that you're in Christ, it begins all the way back in the very heart of God himself. I want to read it again, and I want to read it slowly and probably without comment. That's hard for a preacher. But I want you to just reflect on what this says, and specifically, I want you to think about the story you find yourself in this morning as a Christian. How did it begin? Where does it begin? Who is its author? Look again at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So what? Why does it matter? We all have our origin stories. And again, I'm not talking about the day you were born. I'm talking about those definitive happenings in your life that shape your sense of identity, your sense of self. Sometimes they're incredibly good things. Sometimes they're horrendous, right? What I want you to recognize this morning is the beginning is before those beginnings. If you were the victim of some terrible, abusive trauma, although that is significant, and although those things matter, I'll come back to that in a moment, the story that that happens in is this story. The one where the author, for his good pleasure and in his love, chose to make you his child so that you could be one day in his presence holy and blameless as his beloved. This is the one complaint I have about Stranger Than Fiction. It's the only place where I think they get it wrong when it comes to literature. Noticing what happens in the story is not enough to tell you if it's a tragedy or a comedy. Okay. Now again, in modern English, comedy means funny. Comedy means good. But in classic literature sense, all that matters to make something a comedy is the ending. Romeo and Juliet, for the first two-thirds, is comical in the sense that Stranger Than Fiction talks about it. It's full of good things. Girl meets boy. Boy has amazing words to say to girl. They're fully in love. They make plans to get married, but they both end up dead. Tragedy. Okay. Most Literature that has good endings has bad middles, difficult centerpieces, struggles, okay? We don't write boring stories, even if the boring stories have good endings, because it's the struggle that makes the good ending so evidently good. The struggles are part of your story. If you have survived things, it has in part made you who you are, and it's things that God is going to use but that's the point. God takes those struggles and they become part of the narrative that gets to the end. And this is also true, like I said, of good things. 
if here this is what defines you in Christ and gives you your identity, then there's a sense where you need to distance yourself from even your own birth as definitive. Okay. When somebody asks you the question, who are you, you can say, I am from this family. And that name either ranks or it doesn't, right? You can say, I am from this nation. And that can be said with pride or with shame. Or you can say, I'm part of this race. There's so many ways that we can do this. And again, just like the hard parts in our life, those parts are significant. God is sovereign over those things and he wants to use those and they are truly part of your story, but they're not the beginning. They're not the deepest and most ultimate aspect of your origin story. And so you have to place them in the bigger narrative. They may feel like the beginning. I was born in this century. I was born to this family. I was born in this economic class. And God says, no, 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 no. Before you were born, I loved you. Before you were born, I called you. Before you were born in Christ, I I had plans to adopt you. That's where the story begins. Paul is trying to broaden your narrative because we have a tendency to take the chapter of our life and treat it like the whole book. And Paul says if you're going to understand the closing chapters, the ones you haven't read yet, you need to start at the beginning. You need to get to know the author. You need to embrace these realities. And this is such good news because life is hard. And we go through things that are outright evil and awful. And they matter. And they matter to God. But they fit in this story. Imagine that you were the child born of rape. That fits in this story. If you are in Christ, that's part of your story, but it's not the beginning. Now, is there wrestling to do there? Yes. Do we struggle to figure out how the hardest things in our life fit into God's good plans? Yes. But where do those good plans begin, and why can we trust them? Because they begin in the heart of God, which is a heart of love, and because that's made manifest in Jesus Christ. Let me press you a bit this morning. When you face decisions in your life, when you see impending suffering in your life, when you go through those dark nights of the soul, probably, like me, you start to think backwards and you look for the path that wouldn't have led to these things, right? Or you assess and find meaning in these events because of who you already are. We say things like, this always happens to me, right? Or we think, this is probably my fault. Or a thousand other things. Or we say like Jacob in the book of Genesis, the whole world's against me, right? That's, that's not just an assessment of the facts. That's an identity statement that says, I am public enemy number one. No one is on my side. No one is with me. Right? And it's also a narrative statement. 
It says, the story I am in is one of total opposition and isolation. And we do this all the time, don't we? When we go through things, and we do it with good things too, don't we? We think, yes, this makes sense, I deserve this. We think, finally, I'm being recognized for who I really am, right? Those aren't just observations. They're identity statements about who you really are and their narrative statements about the story that you're living in. And what Paul wants us to do is to reorient the happenings of our story in the context of the beginning. Think of the book of Job. What if we just lost the first two chapters of the book of Job? What do we have then? We have a life like ours. We have a life like Job experienced it right? A life where we're struggling to make sense of things that don't make sense. In the course of 24 hours, Job loses everything. His wealth, his family, his health, it's all gone. And he wrestles with that, the whole book. Why me? And he's right to. But when we read the book, we read it with two additional chapters. Uh, A meanwhile back at the ranch hidden feature right, of what what was really going on, of this heavenly conversation, and even this wage that's laid. Why? Because God trusts Job. He knows that he's righteous, and he puts him through this to demonstrate Job's goodness. These are the opening chapters of your life, and they're essential for you to interpret where you are in the story. And they're essential for you to understand and have confidence, or biblically we would use the language of hope, and have hope on how the story will end. How is it that Job can say the same thing Paul says here? Blessed be God, right? That's what he says. After this horrible, awful, no good, very bad day, he finds himself on his face and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because although he's struggling with the what in his life, he knows the who. This is essential. There's a reason why Paul begins here. It's not just chronological. It's not just rational to begin at the beginning. It gives us a sense of self. If you want to understand and sum up the entire book of Ephesians in one sentence, it's be who you are in Christ. And so eventually, he's going to tell us what we should do with this calling. And he's going to say, if we have this heavenly father, then let us love as our father loves. And he's going to say, if we've been called in this way, let us walk in this calling. And he's going to say, if God's purpose is to present us holy and blameless, then let's pursue lives of holiness and avoid things that blemish us. He's going to do all of that, but he begins here. Just like an actor would who before, you know, he shoots a film out of order, because that's how we do movies, reads the whole script to know who his character is. You need to study the script. 
You need to understand who you are in Christ, and you need to understand that identity begins in the very heart of God before you chose Jesus, before you were born, before the world was in existence. For his good pleasure, according to his grace, to make you his beloved. Let's pray.